Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. But the one who entered through the gate is the chief shepherd of the sheep. To this man the gatekeeper entered, and the sheep hearkened to his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has herded out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice, and by no means will they follow a stranger, but rather flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus pronounced this proverb before them, but they did not understand what the things he was saying to them were. Now, um, there's uh, I, I, what I was getting ready to read to you is um, I have both of these in my uh, new printout. Um, in the message translation, it does say it starts, let me set this in front of you as plain as I can. And, and uh, so he, that's how he begins the proverb. He ends the proverb with, Jesus told this kind of story. But they had no idea what he was talking about. See, it's like, do you see the contrast? Let me give you this as simply as I can. Jesus told this as simple story, but they had no idea what he was talking about. Like, that's, that's brilliant. So Jesus starts with this, and he, he understandably is trying to give them a story. Um, one of the things that's really interesting about starts his ministry by quoting scripture. Now remember that? When Jesus in the temple starts his ministry by quoting scripture, he quotes Isaiah and he and he corrects them. He 
actually takes out the day of the vengeance of our God. Remember? That was the last time we find Jesus fully quoting Scripture. Notice what happens. Jesus quotes scripture and he amends it. And and they pick up stones to kill him. And that's the last time he quotes scripture. You want to know why? Because Jesus starts by quoting scripture in Luke chapter 2. If Jesus had kept quoting scripture, he would have been dead in Luke chapter 3. Like, that's just the way people, especially fundamentalism, does not like it when you challenge the status quo. And so Jesus moves from that, and so what he does now is he will care, and this is not uncommon within rabbinic uh, teaching style, that he will, he'll quote scripture, but he'll, he'll usually just sprinkle things in, but primarily he speaks parables or proverbs. And so Jesus um, does this, and N.T. Wright, uh, the great Kentucky theologian, says, in our Bibles, this is the start of what we would call John chapter 10. But when the book was written, we have to remind ourselves, there were no scripture, um, the first division of scripture ever. We should read this passage and remember it relationally, but we don't have to question the dominating scripture framework. Is Jesus from God or not? Is Jesus a prophet or not? Is he the son of man or not? And how is he confining the actual story of revelation? Now, in what we call chapter 10, we have a parable about a shepherd and sheep. What is the connection? really interesting because the thing we have to remember is what does it say at the top every time we've started with context if you're not paying attention about what has been happening then you're not going to know what's happening and so John chapter 9 Jesus has been moving through this idea of what it looks like for people to be healed rather than judged So John chapter 9, Jesus, in verses 39 and 40, goes directly at the Pharisees. In fact, um, if you remember, he's been teaching. So I know this here seems like it's all that super long. But if you think about it, he's still just finishing up post-pinnacle season. So like all the stuff he's been talking about, all the way back to... Um, before the woman was caught in the act of adultery, um, outside the world, um, when he had his his ministry come to an end and he called back to them, this is still in the same season. Like this is a big deal. So he's still he's given all that stuff. He's been dealing with the religious leaders. Um, he's been saying all of this stuff that hugely, hugely offends them. Because to some degree, as Richard Rohr says, you have to offend the false self so that the true self can emerge. It's just what has to happen. And the false self is just your image, your self-image, who you try to present yourself to everybody else. It's only wrong if that's really who you think you are. The false self is not wrong. It's only wrong. You don't 
because then I'm stepping up as head. However, what we have to understand is when we start propping up God's image, that is what Jesus, why he keeps calling us hypocrites. It means actors. You're acting as if this image you're presenting of yourself as religiously elite as you really are. And as long as you live into that, you have to, what you prop up, what you build up, you are going to have to maintain. And if you prop it up out of your own strength, you're going to have to maintain it out of your own strength. And so he's trying to offend them into getting out of their false self into the true self. The true self is the image of God. There's some really interesting therapeutic events, and um, I'm in psychological work now that's actually trying, so they're trying to figure out how trauma plays a part in how we react and respond. One of the most interesting things about like the image game of these people is they're actually, they, they really do believe that the image game is not necessarily something uh, that God is like, um, that is affected by trauma. Because your act, your true self is unaffected by trauma. Your false self is what's affected by trauma. Your true self, why? Because the perfect image of God is forever. It's been resigned since the foundation. That's, that's unaffectable and unaffectable. Now, the false self is the image that we create based on that trauma. So Jesus is trying to get them into their true self. He's trying to speak through that place. And we have to understand that it's a continuation of chapter 9. So he's just been dealing with them about the blind men. They've been asking questions about generational curses, right? Who sinned, this guy or his parents, his mother or his father? Who did this? Jesus has been going after them in the most obvious fashion possible. And because they're not listening, he starts to answer this chapter 10 critique. Now, the connection here is really, really under, uh, 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 important to understand because he quotes to them. So John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, is not something, he's just going to make this parable up. He's quoting to them a story from the prophets that they would have understood. So he's coming at them in the line of the prophets. Remember, the Exodus story, the story of liberation, is the primary lens for the Jewish history. Jesus makes this over and over and over. The story of the Exodus, the story of liberation, is the lens of the entire biblical narrative. The lens of the Bible. That's why some people ask me, do you believe um, that in a, in a liberation hermeneutic or a liberation theology? Yeah, the only difference is I think if you actually look at the scripture, liberation is the theology of the Bible. It's not a set of the theology of the Bible. The whole thing, starting with really the beginning, is liberation. So, Jesus moves into this critique of fundamentalists and the religious police critiquing um, from that, speaking about sheep and shepherds. But the context is exactly the same. Jesus is speaking from a passage they would have immediately recognized and understood. He's calling back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, most scholars suggest that we should break uh, John chapter 10 into three sections because he gives three different parables. The problem is we don't understand that he's giving three different parables, and so we get the language all mixed up. So Jesus is the good shepherd, 
and Luther for the years of truth. So you have all these metaphors, but the problem is we've mixed all these metaphors up. And so then we have this weird thought about, okay, so Jesus is the, is the shepherd, but then it says he's the goat, and we're the sheep, and we are his voice. But then we're supposed to be like Jesus, so aren't we supposed to be a shepherd? But then the master is the shepherd, and then there's the thief that comes another way, and he's a robber. But that's the devil. You see how it gets real jacked up? Like, we really don't know what we're talking about. And so we just quote single things, and we say things like, the devil is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Everybody deal with that. giving us a clear parable dealing with a critique of authority. So, what we have to understand is this is an obvious callback. He's still talking to them about the blind man. He's still talking, the, the blind man's been healed. Jesus shows up in the temple. The blind man points out Jesus. Read John chapter 9 at the end. Points out Jesus and they say, how is it that this has happened? And Jesus begins to speak to them about the difference because he still wants to have it. So Jesus begins to speak to them about the religious system and how it's oppressing the people when they should be healing the people. So Jesus, in this understanding, we're going to break this into parts, um, but what happens is if we stay at the liter literal level or face value, it can be helpful, but it doesn't move us from transactionalism into transformation. Jesus is always trying to move us out of transaction into transformation. The Jewish, um, not the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders, the fundamentalists, stayed in transaction. They still stay in transaction today. Fundamentalism is based in transaction. If you do, God does. story is Jesus, he's the good shepherd, the sheep know his voice, so my job is to be a good sheep because Jesus is the good shepherd. That's true, of course, but if we stop there at the literal level, have we actually moved in following the way of Jesus or simply reap the benefits of his shepherding?
applies to you. I mean, one of the main issues that you have in fundamentalism is you have a bunch of people who are devoted and in love with Jesus, but no idea what it means to actually live life. No idea what it means that they actually, so when Beth Kalman, uh, when you ask people questions about what they believe, what they end up saying is, well, that's just, that's just the way it is. That's just what we believe. That's the equivalent to telling your 18-year-old kid, because I said so. Let me know how that works on you. That works when you're three. Because I said so becomes less effective if you've raised a responsible, mature adult. That's just the way it is. So what you see to follow the way of Jesus is to live into his example. In fact, at most of it, we use this chapter as an exclusionary passage to justify the Christian religion and our commitment to it. Maybe something like this. Jesus is the only gate to come to God. He's the gate. The only way to God is through Jesus. So then it's our job to somehow solicit sheep, to make more sheep, that hear his voice because he's the gate to get to God. And typically what we would do is we would follow up John 10 with John 14 to really call him upon. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the gate. If you want to get to God, you have to come through Jesus. Otherwise, you're a thief and a robber. Does that sound about right? And the way we interpret the passage, if we don't pay attention, is in exclusivity. It's like adventures in missing the point. Jesus is trying to speak to us about how to be more inclusive, and, and we read it by being exclusive. That there's a certain sect of people who are good sheep. The real challenges by doing that, what we find, we substitute ourselves out as the only ones who hear his voice. So now I hear his voice, and I'm a good sheep, and he's my shepherd. But the Baptist person up the street, or the Muslim person up the street, the atheist person up the street, or the Presbyterian up the street doesn't really hear him. is the point. We live in signs of the times. At the very least, at the literal level, what he's saying is we're all sheep. And what makes us sheep and a good sheep is believing that makes us The whole contrast of this is healing the blind man 
or who they and who doubt. Jesus had just finished the showdown with the religious fundamentalists, including calling them sinners who were blind and children of Satan. I'm pretty sure he made a strong decision to leave HBO for this. So Jesus does that. The second thing is that it becomes even clearer when we realize that the parable doesn't say, now hear this, this is going to mess with you, but it's true. The parable does not say that the thief and the robber don't get in. It says they get in, but they're coming in by another way. Guess what? The thief and the robber are in the pasture, and the shepherd doesn't kick them out. Now, that should mess with us. The thief and, because if the whole context of this is we're good sheep and we're in, no, 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 guess what? Everybody's in. The thief and the robber are inside. The only difference is they're just not coming by the way that he's describing. They're still in the, in the pasture. And the shepherd almost pays no attention to the fact that they're there. Jesus doesn't, like the shepherd doesn't stop and take his shepherding stick and bash them over the head or drive them out. He didn't do any of that. You know what he just says? Yeah, anyone that comes a different way is a thief and a robber. And what he's doing, if we're paying attention for a second, is he's juxtaposing the two types of leadership. He's talking to religious leaders about what it means to lead people well. So at the literal level, we should understand that what Jesus is saying is that he's the shepherd over everything. And that within that fold, there are going to be some people who actually follow and listen and some people who don't. At the deeper metaphorical level, our job is not to just be sheep. Our job is to be like this shepherd. So the idea is Jesus is trying to give to us. He's calling back to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 says, As I live, says the Lord God, because my sheep have become prey, and because my shepherd have not searched for my sheep, they have not cared for my sheep, but have fed themselves. Therefore, shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. No longer shall shepherds feed themselves and be thieves and robbers. But I will come and I will rescue the sheep so that no longer they will be excluded from having food. I will search for them. I will seek them out. I will rescue them from the places they are scattered. I will feed them with the good pastures. I myself will care for all of them. So he's quoting Ezekiel 34, clearly. Ezekiel 34 is Ezekiel the prophet condemning the priestly religious class for not caring for the sheep, but fleecing the sheep. So Jesus quotes that because what's just happened in this context is there was a blind guy. Jesus heals him, and the religious leaders get ticked about it. So Jesus calls back 
and reminds them of Ezekiel 34 and says, don't you remember that what we're supposed to do if you are a leader is you're supposed to care for, provide for, and heal those in your care, not protect them and isolate them from what it is you're supposed to step into so they can be healed. The context is what type of person are you going to be? The context is not something about if you get saved, now all of a sudden your job is to be a good shepherd so bad you need to take good care of people. That's what we find. In this story, Jesus is trying to show us what type of caregivers we're supposed to be. Because if we read the whole story, what he says is the thing that separates him as a shepherd from the religious leaders as a shepherd is this shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So in this vein, Jesus gives this incredible parable and draws from it the idea of what it looks like to be someone who lays down his life. He's speaking to the religious elite, the gatekeepers of the religious system. He's addressing their exclusivity, and in many ways, he's doing what the prophets have done since the beginning, speaking truth to power. If you really want me to be political for a moment, that's what we're lacking today in our country. People who will speak truth to power. Over the centuries, the Bible has been used and taught by people on the inside and at the top. Hear what I just said. Primarily, the Bible has been taught by people on the inside and at the top, not people on the outside and at the bottom. The problem is the Bible is a message for the people on the outside and at the bottom. But if the people delivering that message are on the inside and at the top, do you think it's going to get conveyed that way? No. It's going to be conveyed in a way to preserve their top heads. That's how you come up with hierarchical teaching. Like if you want to be blessed, you have to be in full submission to authority so that if the oil runs down over the leader, it will get to you. What does that do? It preserves the leader. Sorry, I got real quiet. That's what happens. You do realize that we live in this reality where Bible is taking the Bible the only people that had the Bible were the religious elite. So guess who was telling all the people what the Bible said they should be doing? The people on the inside and at the top. But the whole message of the Bible is liberation and healing for the people on the outside and at the bottom. So it's no wonder, especially when we live in the greatest empire the world has ever known, why the version of our, of our liberation message is that we're going to be liberated to go somewhere else when we die. Why? Because the problem is, if you actually read the Bible, the critique is against us. The whole biblical critique is against empire, folks. And I'm sorry to tell you, but in the story, we're Egypt. America is 
Egypt, not Israel. If we're sitting here in this room, we're on the upside of things. So if we actually read the story, we're the ones who are the beneficiaries of slavery. We're the ones who are the beneficiaries of systems that oppress the poor rather than help the poor. We're the ones who are beneficiaries of um, radical militarization throughout the rest of the world whereby we rob them of what they have. So it's no wonder that the message we've been given has been a message of exclusivity where all you have to do is be a good Samaritan to avoid sin and you die, you get liberated to heaven elsewhere because if we actually read the message, it would cause those who are on the inside and of the out to be put in their centuries, that's how the Bible has been taught. But if we read the words and and, and just practice them, we will find a new viewpoint to read, see the world. The posture of Jesus going to power, where he, like the good shepherd, lays down our lives. This is the way that it's supposed to be. But groups always want to circle the wagons around themselves. So what happens is Jesus knew that there was a better way of man. We could call this the wisdom of the outsider, which comes from those who are in any way marginalized, excluded, disabled, or on the outside. So this is why Jesus, he tried to prove this, because this is why Jesus, the first thing that he did when he started leading his disciples around to see what it was supposed to look like to develop the kingdom, notice what he did. He left Israel. First place he goes, Samaria. Why? Those are the outsiders. If you actually want to read the story of Jesus, the first thing you can find is, is you begin to see that all of the people, there were seven primary groups of the Jewish religious tradition that Jesus was out at that time. And those are the people that Jesus regularly interacted with. Why? He's trying to upend the, 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 the system, as it were. Their journey, even the idea that Jesus takes his disciples and sends them out into pairs and, and says that when the gospel is preached to the uttermost parts of the earth. Why do you think he's saying that? He's trying to to show Christendom that it's not about staying in your religious group, but the message of the kingdom is for all people. And so Jesus does this. The prophets do this so so that we can know that God is always on the losing side. I, I didn't say God loses. I just said that God goes to the losers. That's literally how Jesus starts his public ministry. If you remember the first thing we find of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, I have come to preach good news to the poor. The first thing that Jesus says in in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. He's trying to tell us that the outsider is where the message of the kingdom ends. 
And so what Jesus is doing is he's trying to invite us to kind of do that. But if we put this whole kingdom thing, see, that's what happens when we live a disembodied gospel. What I mean by a disembodied gospel is that all of the provisions, blessings, um, um, examples are spiritual and for another time. If it's spiritual and for another time, then nobody here and now ever gets liberated. The goal is to get more people saved so that they can reap the liberation of the afterlife rather than the good news being that the poor can be provided for, that the lame can walk, that the blind can see, that the captives can be set free. That's the idea of what the gospel is supposed to mean. So the message is never about how do I get more people saved so that they can be liberated when they die. This place is going to suck, but when you die. I mean, honestly, that's why most of our gospel messages don't work in homeless shelters. They just don't. It doesn't work when you're trying to tell people, oh, but if you just hold on, the blessing of God is he's going to provide. And then you get this, this perverted prosperity gospel that says that God's going to give you a million dollars. At that point, that's not a message that makes sense. So you get magic Jesus on the scene who's going to somehow put, put food in your pantry, money in your bank account, and save your soul from an eternal hell rather than a God who is with you and for you, seeing you, and caring for you. That's it. It's a gospel for the outsider because everything God ever did for the Jewish people, for Abraham, was on behalf of the entire world. So Jesus says to us, that we must understand the mystery of surrender. Jesus tells us that we must find the courage to trust spiritual power until we have actually experienced the power of God who is willing to wait, the power of God who is willing to allow, the power of God who is willing to forgive and trust and love unconditionally. From the very beginning, the Bible teaches us this kind of power.
It seems that until you are excluded from the system, you are not able to recognize the idolatry that lies in the shadow of the very system that we all trust and claim to follow. It is important to know that people can be personally well and truly and well intentionally and sincere, but structurally it's challenging for us to think of the sincerity of Christians like so. Before Christian religion could be established, religious Christians were at the bottom of society. The unpowerful place was actually the easiest place to understand the gospel. But in the 4th century, Christians suddenly moved from the bottom of the Roman society to the top. Christians got saved and made the Roman religion Christianity. So suddenly no longer are we being executed. Now, if you don't follow what we teach, you're being executed. Understand how much this changed how we viewed the gospel. So the empire went from executing us to executing those who aren't like us. That's a messed up change, guys. And it really changes the way you read the gospel. The uh, failing Roman Empire needed an emperor, and Jesus was used to fill the gap. So Jesus, rather than the Savior of the world who lays down his life, becomes the emperor, someone who builds up a kingdom. The loving relationship and the Trinity were largely lost as the shape of God, the Father, became angry and distant, and Jesus became the, what I would call, the secretary of afterlife program. So rather than Jesus being the king of the world, Jesus becomes the secretary of afterlife care. His job is not to show us how to live and that the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The job is to get us into heaven and to appease the angry father. The job of Jesus is the nice guy in the good cop, bad cop relationship of God and So what happens is Jesus um, becomes that role. The Holy Spirit is mostly forgotten. If I can be really honest with you. Now, the beauty of it is if it, that we've inherited things from a charismatic Pentecostal background. Many of us inherited a more robust Holy Spirit um, uh, theology. But to most of the church, the Holy Spirit is kind of weird. Not talked about, and and if I can be honest, even we had our confusion about was it God that was in us, was it the Holy Spirit, was so we love it when God kind of comes into place, or was the Holy Spirit the one that comes? My family kind of had that kind of weird. So to me, this could be why so much effort was rightly given to establishing a clear understanding of the Trinity that the Christian Orthodox theologically claimed but never intended to practice. took them almost 300 years to get really, really serious with what the Bible was. Standing there on their own, probably seven years old, laying things together. But they, they knew that Jesus had to stay in the church. Why was it that important? As strange as it sounds, if our Trinity theology is right, 
then our power theology will be validated. The wisdom of the Trinity is that it displays a circle dance of mutuality and communion. Literally, the word Trinity is parakoresis. It means a circle dance. So the idea of the Trinity is, that they came up with, is that there's this circular movement where none of them lose their identity, but all of them are willing to lay themselves down on behalf of the other. So it's perfect um, uh, uh, individuality while also being perfectly submissive to the other's individuality. Do you see how this is drastically different than Good shepherd, the one who cares for the sheep, does what? Lays down his life. Bad power are thieves and robbers that are fleecing the sheep. I told you that Ezekiel 36 says where they take from the sheep, where they, they, they determine how can the sheep provide for us. So the Trinity is that incredible example of mutuality and communion. He means, especially the powerful, wealthy, with a divine monarch on top of some type of pyramid. So we've talked before that our idea, even as the Trinity, our idea that we were hinting is a pyramid, wasn't it? God the Father on top, Jesus the Holy Spirit. That's not how it works. It, by definition, as soon as you've done that, you've broken the Trinity and you are in formal Shared 
on going on here? Kingdom power, Trinity, changes us, not someone else. Transformed people have learned to use power to protect and care for the powerless. Someone called the servant leadership or patient leadership calls essentially the goal of this good shepherd model is not just to be one of the sheep, but it's to be one who listens to the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus, when he leads us, of course. But the goal of following Jesus is always to do what Jesus does. And in some way, in our lives, every one of us have power. There are in some relationship, in some, uh, maybe it's in our job, maybe it's um, in our family, maybe it's in friendships. In some way or another, the first step is identifying in what relationship. There's always a power dynamic. In what relationship am I the one with power? And how can I lay that down on behalf of them and not use that as their leadership? Because what ends up happening is when we exercise that kind of power over sheep, it's not actually true being because true power is power that comes to us, not comes to them. No greater love hath a man than he would lay down his life for what? What did it say? Lay down his life for you. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.